Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Welcome to the Zane Lowe interview series. I'm Hanuman Welch from Zane's team here on Apple Music. Zane is out this week, so I'm bringing you his conversation with the Black Keys, fresh from releasing their 10th studio album, Dropout Boogie. Now, this new album serves as a full circle moment as the band is also celebrating the 20th anniversary of their debut album, The Big Come Up. They join Zane in the studio to dive deep into the album, including working with the legendary Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, Beck being an early fan of theirs, and touring the country in a Buick sedan. This is that conversation. Be churlish not to congratulate you on the quality of this album. I don't know what are we at album ten, eleven. It's technically eleven, I guess, because uh, but one of them's a covers record. So how we call that? I mean, look, you're still yeah. breathing new life into into classic music. It's still an album. Put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. It's a record. You know, I think if you add up all all of the albums between the side projects, the solo stuff, it, it's like. Somewhere in mid-20s. Probably somewhere in the 19s or early 20s, longer than you thought you were going to continue going. Yeah, absolutely. Our 20th anniversary of our first record is uh, Saturday, which isn't is that, insane. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. Are you going to celebrate? It's Dan's birthday. Is it? Yeah, we're going to hang out, yeah. Wait, so hang on. Help me put this together. It's what, It should be way more simple than my brain's making it. <laughs> your anniversary falls on your birthday, which means that you put a record out on your birthday. We try to put the records out close to Dan's birthday. It's oh. just easier for me to organize, to remember it. <laughs> is, is that really the truth? Some Raymond. I don't know. Some Raymond. <laughs> Some Raymond. I mean, but Gotta watch like, Wapna. Gotta watch Wapna. I, I'm kind of, I'm not like superstitious, but I do. Yeah. Man, I'm these a, are I'm the like, best coffee mugs too, by the way. Yeah, they're, they're, they're portable and durable and they keep the coffee warm Best and hot. Design. And what's the latest you'll ever drink coffee? Um, well, it depends. I suppose you're recording. You're a recording artist. So like, what the f*** is a day? Mm, no. Or you keep I, hours. I like to, I, I get this too at 9 a.m. You keep I hours. I work all day. Yeah. You keep hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Damon keeps hours. I feel like Nick Cave keeps, various other artists I've spoken to, they keep hours. Yeah, does I that like to. Does that work for you or are you more of a like, let's just do it when we do it vibe? No, I like to work during the day, and I like to um, yeah, zone out at night. But I, I stay up much later than he does. Dan wakes up much earlier. But we that always worked great too when we were on tour because oh, I yeah. would drive during the day, and he'd drive during the night. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, never really had to stop. That's beautiful. It did work out good. Mm -hmm. What was the smallest thing you ever drove in? Was it a car? Yeah, it was a Buick uh, Century. Buick sense. So you just chucked your stuff literally in the boot. It's a rental. Well, the drums fit in the boot, and then we got the amps in the back seat, the so back we couldn't seat. recline. But it was uh, fast. We drove across. It was faster than the minivan. <laughs> it was fast. We got it up to 120 in Wyoming. <laughs> I remember that. And, uh, I remember Pat was sleeping in the front seat, and I just... Yeah, I got it to like 120 and then tapped him on the shoulder. <laughs> woke him up. Dude, dude, look, we're about to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you could have reclined a seat, so he just like, I just, be, you just have to hunch over and drool on yourself. <laughs> you said it was a Buick, Buick sedan. Some Buick, Buick century. Sedan. Yeah, I drove one across America. A really, really ugly, but perfectly functional, surprisingly quick, yeah. gray Buick sedan. Yeah, it was probably the same functional. one. Maybe in the same one. It was a Randall, yeah. me and my friend drove LA to New York. And that gray Buick sedan. Those were the days, man. I feel there's a metaphor for black keys in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, when you guys were like doing 120, you were probably shaking. There's like a there's like a tortoise in the hair analogy there. It did take us 10 years before we had a hit song. Yeah, what a fucking hit. And also like, it's not when you have the hit, it's what you do with it. 
a lot of people can go back and say I had a hit, great. But what are you going to trade that in for to, in terms of the long road, right? And I feel like you've done a really good job, a little piss in the pocket moment of keeping everybody, at least a majority of the people who were either there at the beginning and then came around 10 years on. It's, we're it's, still in it. We're still in the great Bu- We're still in the Buick. It's uh, holding up better than Pac-Man fever did. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second time that my man's brought up Pac-Man fever in an interview with me. And he won't remember this, but I do because that's my job. Oh, I yeah. remember you tried to convince me that he wasn't around for an interview because he had a bad dose of Pac-Man fever. <laughs> Whereas I think it was more you couldn't be f- which was a much better truthful answer. Uh, at that moment in time. I was actually Miss Pac-Man fever, just to <laughs> clarify. So what you, I love the way the sounds, I don't know if it's, a, I mean, I think it has to evolve in studios, right? You don't just crack it on day one. You got to breathe music into it. You got to tune it. The songs dictate what comes out next, all that kind of stuff. So I say all that to assume that you would agree. And now I can give you the honest compliment that, e, that, that this Easy Eye studio sounding can better than ever, bro. It feels really good. You know, we, sounds we, good. We made that Delta Cream record and we had so much fun making it. It was like we were just excited. Felt good. I don't know. Kind of because you weren't dealing with the whole what are we writing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was one of our favorite records we made. So we just rode that wave right back in the studio. We couldn't wait to get back in. And we started wor- working right away. When you sort of get into a room and you... You charge yourself with the somewhat of the, it's fun, sure, it's quick, but it, you know you're fucking around with recordings that motivated and influenced you in the first place, right? So what you don't want to do is overthink it, but equally you don't want to just trust your instinct to the point of fucking it all up. So how was that experience looking back on it now? I mean, it's kind of, it's a bold thing to go into standards like that and know you got the chops to carry them off, and you did, but still. We were just hanging out. We, you know, those guys, Kenny, Kenny Brown and Eric Deaton were in town. And um, we just gave it a shot. It wasn't like we were planning to make a record or anything. So we were just jamming. We didn't even like, we didn't even attempt to mix the record until maybe six or seven months later. Oh, wow. So it really just was a hang. It was just sitting there. Yeah. Amazing. They were in town. So I, I called Pat up. I said, come on over. Let's play some songs. Kenny Brown's here. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. We went over there and like I was, I never actually, I don't think I probably ever met Kenny before. So it was cool. We, you know, sat down and told us some stories and he started playing that slide guitar and it just sounded so amazing because it's, you know, the music that yeah. inspired us to start the band was a lot of that. Yeah, he played on the Junior Kimbrough records yeah. and the R.L. Burnside ones. Um, and those are the <laughs> records that Pat and I bonded over, man. We listened to them a thousand times. That's the, that's the closest thing to an out-of-body experience you probably have is when you're listening to your heroes play back oh at God. you in the room. When you're sitting next to him playing and he's playing the same guitar that he played on Junior Kimbrough's Sad Days, yeah. Lonely Nights, Too Bad Jim by R. Burnside. It's like, it's per- it was perfect. That's a sign of, I think, like, you know, it's like the cool thing about being a singer is that your your voice is inherently unique, singular, but so hard as a musician to have a, like, pick up a wooden <laughs> stick and make it sound like yourself. And, and, and then you say that, but then, and there's this, and this happens. And so I immediately know that's you, and then I absolutely know that's you. Now, why is that? Why is it that I just know it's you? It's it's us. It's so crazy. If, I, if 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 we weren't playing together, it wouldn't 
be a little different, I think. It's the way that we, it's the way that it gets, I don't know, music comes out like that when we play together. Yeah, it's been the same since we were 16, 17. Really, truly. This one, this song's improvisation. Yeah, you can tell because the way you guys started, I can yeah. feel you feeling it out. There's like three songs on this record that are just totally made up off the cuff. First take. Uh, what about things? lyrically? You just added it, added over. Yeah, yeah, at the end. But I sang, you know, like they're trying to find mumbled it. around yeah, finding yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, and and you know that chemistry, that feel, that sound that you had was there at the beginning. You stumble into a room, we've covered this before, but you stumble into a room and it's like, oh, okay, well, like, nice to know you. I guess we'll, I guess that's our life now. <laughs> you know, but I've never asked you, like, looking back on it now, did it kind of freak you the f out a little bit? Like, that, how can you not believe in magic when that happens and you never planned it? The older we get, the more we believe, you know, the more we, you know, realize how special it is, the gift that we were given you know, to be able to have this connection that we have. And we don't take it for granted, man. You know, we, we work on it all the time. Mm. There's a lot of levels to it, too. It's like we grew up, we grew up around the corner from each other. And, you know, when we finally kind of, we used to trade baseball cards with each other and we got picked on by the same piece of shit down the street. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and when we finally found ourselves uh, into music at the same time, just even recognizing the fact that, like, because we were kind of, we were kind of two different kind of groups of friends, you know, and just like I guess just having the maturity to be like, this is bigger than all that. This is bigger than all that, and we, you know, it's crazy. It's yeah, it's like at this point, you know, I see damn more than I see anybody else in my family or any friends, you know. So he's my longest friend, you know. We've known each other for thirty something years. You know, I had this conversation with uh, Metallica and how it all happened, and it dawned on me from the story that they were telling about how James was like, you know, one ad in that trade that morning talked about heavy metal because no one knew about the new wave of British metal. One ad, one trade, one response, Lars. So it's like, wait, that's just all ones. It's not even like there's a there's a ball of lottery balls going around here. That's just all ones. It's like right. that moment, that trade, that ad, that guitarist, that drummer, heavy metal. It's crazy. That is so cool. It's so cool. And 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 I, I say that to say that that's kind of a similar situation for you, except, you know, this is a weird question. If I'll just dive in. Like, what you've done for the blues in terms of reintroducing it or introducing it or or bringing it into the modern era like placing it on an alternative rock bill <laughs> it's fucking awesome right it's supposed to be on a blues bill we used to shy away from that so hard around our second record through maybe even el camino because by you know, we were we were inspired by all this hill country blues stuff. And we were inspired by Fat Possum Records, man. Yeah. They sent all their blues artists out on tour. Yeah. And they didn't send them to blues clubs. They sent them to the little rock and roll clubs, you know. Saw RL and T-Model Ford and Paul Wine Jones and all these guys at the Grog Shop in Cleveland or like the Beachland Tavern in Cleveland. You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. just a... But we would show up to play these shows in the cynical, like, local weekly writer would be, you know, like, Blues Hammer 2.0. <laughs> you know, like, it's like... It's like, imagine if you like, if an art critic, you know, just anything anybody ever did because they didn't invent it. It's just like, wait a second. If you had to invent like every 
style of food that a chef would make. We'd be like, I mean, that's probably where smoothies came from. It was just like, we ran out of fucking vessels, grind it up. Now we're in a smooth it out. If you smoothed this dish, it would be really cool. Can you smooth it out? We ran out of vessels. Can you smooth it out? Yeah. This is delicious plate of food. Can you smooth it out for me? But I do think that that was a really freeing thing was like uh, with Dan starting his label, Easy Eye, he was he's able to make, you know, these records that he's passionate about. And uh, a lot of them are blues records. And so it's cool. Like we stepped into that, you know, right behind the label and to be able to do Delta Cream, you know, I just, it's cool to get to share like these songs that inspired us on a big thing, you know, because like, a record that really inspired me was the John Spencer Blues Explosion mm. made a record with R.L. Burnside. And that, mm. That's what put the music on the map for me. You know, and like this is maybe sort of a continuation of that mm -hmm. spirit. Man, what a band. What a live band as well. Oh Didn't God. they just call time? I think they just yeah. called time. Yeah. That's one of those bands where we talk about like someone playing an instrument you can just tell it's like Russell, Russell Simmons Russell Simmons on drums man oh my God. crazy I saw them at the power station with Beck loser oh, wow. like mellow gold yeah like the world is just oh, like awesome going Beck mad like orange and mellow gold that's right Oof. yeah yeah on that tour in that New Zealand and Auckland at the wow. power station like a concrete bunker with 1200 people oh, you know, played there before yeah. you know that place yeah. wow right a lot of reverberation in there right? oh yeah <laughs> Yes, before the idea of the art of audio engineering really landed on our, our beautiful shores. <laughs> but, you know, it was a room. But, um, you yeah. Don't, you don't even, if Russell Simmons is playing the drums, uh, he's the drummer for the Blues Explosion. Yeah, I don't think you really even need a PA. Yeah. He hits the drums so hard, it's amazing. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, when I saw them, I, I saw them a few times when I was a teenager. And uh, they were definitely my favorite live band. Um, you know, when we started the band, I wasn't even a drummer. But when I, Start trying to fake the funk. Uh, that's a, <laughs> a dude I was really looking at. Well, also, power is a great way to distract for a while while you're figuring out what you're going to play. Hell yeah. Like, I hit real hard. It's you know? the only way. And you have distortion. And so between the two of you, you'll figure it out over time. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's actually interesting. That's an interesting point. Like, yeah, you didn't see cavemen going around like poisoning elk. They would clobber the fucking thing. <laughs> and, then, and then like can you smooth it out for yeah, me yeah it's like could you be a little more subtle with your killing <laughs> when did you really feel like you were able to uh not <laughs> just smash 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 anymore and that you actually felt like okay we can apply a different a different sort of level of playing here to our albums at least um, was it when you started working with Brian? Is that kind of like an open door for you to sort of start exploring a slightly more kind of considered approach than just turn it the fuck up? Because I love it, turn it the up records. But I felt like that was when things kind of went into a different groove. I, th I think on a re recording, we'd always been kind of into the dynamics. But when you get on, get us on stage, sometimes, you know, like the nerves hit and it's just... Yeah, fast and hard. So yeah. I, I say when we started touring with extra musicians, the dynamics obviously mm. increased. So that would be like Brothers, 2010. I don't think Brian gets enough credit for taking on really tough Oh no, he doesn't. Jobs. I think he gets the credit for the way the records sound and rightfully so. But he he has dealt with some tricky, tricky bands at tricky times, trying to kind of take them into 
what I would consider uncharted territory. And I feel like your band is one of those bands that you, the three of you figured that out. Yeah, we learned so much working with Brian. It was the first time we'd ever been in a real recording studio. Um, and it was the first time we ever opened ourselves up to working with anybody. Which is, and it was a strange choice, man, because Black Keys are working with a real producer in a real studio. Rick Rubin, ah, oh, perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it would just capture the sound of the band in a beautiful room and make it fucking awesome. Brian was coming off the back of like gorillas and all kinds of crazy. Mm -hmm. Brian's got a very hands-on approach uh, that was really effective for us because, you know, he was like, basically like, slow, slow down. Let me show you like how I would do this. And if you don't like it, we won't do it. And, you know, through that, like we learned a lot, you know, especially when it comes to the idea of like putting songs together and he let us, he gave us like the freedom that we wanted, like the, the sonic stuff. Like he was like, make it sound however you want. But that's not what I'm worried about. Like worried about this other stuff. Which was what? Which is like writing songs and huh? <laughs> producing a record. <laughs> Cause like, you know, when we first started, a really big challenge was making something that sonically felt cool. Yeah. Because, it, you know, you would go to these studios and they'd have like an eight app, which is like a digital audio tape recorder <laughs> and everything just sound like drums just sound like, you know, a mouse hitting like yeah. uh, match boxes or something. Yeah. There's, just, there's no depth and there's no fuzz. There's yeah. no grit. So uh, for a long time, it's that, that aesthetic, you know, was very uh, important, you know. And then sometimes eventually we had to like learn how to, around Magic Potion, I think we started trying to step away from that aesthetic and get through to the next level, but Brian was like the one to really shepherd us into that. And then, so he made, a, he produced Attack and Release with us. Mm. Then we went and made Brothers on our own uh, with an engineer named Mark Neal. And uh, and we knew like when we finished that record, and that was aesthetically what we wanted and sonically was there and song-wise was there, but I feel like we still like, we needed like, we thought we should try to write like a song that might be the single. And we went in the studio with Brian and we, in two days, wrote Tighten Up. Mm -hmm. And when we first finished it, we were just like, I don't know, man. Like, does it, does it really fit? Does it work? And it was... Uh, I was very unsure. Yeah, you we, were? Oh, yeah. I didn't know if it should even be on the record. What do you think, looking back on it now, was like the concern? Where was it rooted in? I, I'm not sure. I mean, it was so, so poppy. And I was going to say, you know, there's that inherent suspicion that artists who come from a certain corner of the room have when they find themselves in the center of the room, even if you took yourself there. Mm. Oh, yeah, there's nothing scarier than a cool band who has like a pop a, hit. A hit. You can destroy your band. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was, we were hesitant on what to do with that. And we played it for our friend Leon was the keyboard player eventually for the arcs and he was like you guys are idiots if you don't put that on your record <laughs> like, and so, cold bucket of water from leon is needed at this l moment. michaels l michaels affair yeah so he would but then after that after that we were like okay brian like delivered and uh he's like i want to do the whole next record so we did we, he did the next two with us and you know it was so much fun making the el camino was like I don't know. Like going, we did it at a dance studio, and uh, you know, it was like hanging out in a frat house for like six <laughs> weeks. We were just busting each other's balls so hard. Yeah. Well, it was a joy to receive. I remember hearing that album, and by this point, you're a big band. I mean, you come through 
the UK, you're not just playing the clubs anymore. And I was at Radio 1, so you'd be straight into Meta Vale, which was the way that we would sort of say, okay, this band's awesome. Like, they're riding the wave now, you know. Let's put them in Meta Vale, you know what I mean, on my show at least. And you came in on that El Camino record, I remember, and it was a big show, man. It was like you had everyone playing with you, and the whole thing just felt like, this is like festival headlining. <laughs> like, I was thrown off my axis that night. That was, I remember that, I remember that night very clearly, and that was like the pinnacle of like, I don't know, that whole, that was like, it was like January or February 2012. Yeah. And we did three nights at Alexandria Palace. Yeah. It's funny because it's like 10,000, we sold 30,000 tickets in London and our agent comes back after the last show and we're just like, man, this is crazy. Okay, now, you know, we're going on to do this big US arena tour and he's like, man, uh, you guys are going to have to come back. You need to make a real statement here in London. We're like, what the? <laughs> He's like, yeah, like, you got to make a We're real. On top of a hill in London, there's ten thousand people out there. Like, we just played to thirty thousand yeah. people. Like, yeah, no, it's not. You know, the British press just doesn't understand that. You got to do. <laughs> you're going to have to do two nights at the O2 in December. Who's your? Who's your? Was it Russell? No, it's uh -huh. a Mike Greek. He's still our agent. All right. And uh, <laughs> it's ge he's a genius. Clearly, <laughs> he got his commissions doubled. Because uh, he got us back over there. We've only played like one or two shows in the UK since then. We had to cancel whole tour. Yeah. I broke my shoulder. That's right. And the last time we played the UK was we headlined Isle White in 2015. We haven't been back. We need to go back. You need to go back. Uh, we're going to go back next year. There's so much love in the UK for Black Keys. I remember seeing you. One of the, I mean, you, you, you remember this. You will remember this. You soundtracked a very, very emotional night for a lot of people. The night, the, the day that we all found out that John Peel had died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, you played at the Scala. It was yeah. Scala, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Fuck. That's, a, I mean, I have. I've got a picture of Pat holding the newspaper. It was either with, with Peel Shepherd's and Shepherd's Bush or Scala. But it, it was, was Scala. Like, yeah. Yeah, because we were, we were, we landed and I think we, that day we were scheduled to go to Made Vale 3 to do, or whatever it was. Yeah. Peel Studio to do, uh, John Peel was our first big time supporter. I mean, it was like a game changer for us. When we found out he was playing our music and uh you know we did we did like three peel sessions real fast yeah two in the studios and one in his house one in his house mm -hmm. yeah and he didn't listen you didn't make it to peel acres unless it was a real thing it was awesome man it we were amazing. we had him searching all over for records and stuff <laughs> it was great we were so jet lagged we were so i had us take a nap in his daughter's bed he was like you can go sleep upstairs we had just flown in we just we did a, we did like a show in norway where all the black metal bands are from, no Todden, and like it mm -hmm. didn't get dark till like four in the morning. I was like, so so excited to be in a different <laughs> country. I stayed up till like four in the morning. <laughs> I mean, you imagine being a music fan in Norway and knowing you just backs against the wall from day one. <laughs> I have to go and play live in ten p.m. in the bright hot sun. Dude, when we landed, uh, the driver was like, "You guys are musicians." We're like, yeah. He's like, ah. Do you like aha? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, excuse me. Like, yeah, aha. Uh -huh. You know? And I was like, oh my God. I was like, the aha uh -huh is like the Beatles of Norway. <laughs> no shit. And then uh, we ended up going back to to Norway like that later that year. And um, and uh, we were on Epitaph at the time, home of Turbo Negro. And the drummer from Turbo Negro came to the show. I was like, do you want to go get a beer after the show? And I went out with him. And like, everyone was, like honestly he was like the most famous man in the country 
And he was, he was like, this is my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, I met her. And she was like, yes, she's Miss Universe. <laughs> she was, really? I think so. Yeah. I think I like, that's about 90% true. She might just be Miss, Miss, Uni- Miss, Miss Norway. Norway. Yeah. She's in the Miss Universe pageant. Either way. Yeah, she was somewhere. You had the full Norwegian experience. And I won't hear a bad word against Hunting High and Low. That's a classic 80s album right there. I guess it's no different than if someone comes to Akron and they're like, oh, you, you, you're a musician? Oh, you, you like Devo? Because that, that, they're the Beatles of Akron still. I mean, surely, though, I mean, and don't get me wrong, shouts to Devo on all levels. Yeah. But, I mean, Black Keys, Akron, I feel the last 20, 30 years, it's hard-pressed to get past the, the two Beatles sitting before me right here. My question is, which <laughs> Beatles are you? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both Ringo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you like Get Back? Did you watch Get Back? Did you? Watch I didn't it? watch it. You didn't watch, watch it? it. I haven't watched it yet. Someone wow. described it to me, and I was like, "We were making the record at the time," and I was like, <laughs> "Now don't watch uh, it while you're making a record." Yeah. They're like, they're, they're like, yeah, you know, Yoko's just sitting there, and I was like, "I'm, I'm good right now." <laughs> <laughs> there's I'm a good. lot more. There's a lot more to take from it than that. No, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. You, you, you will watch it when you do. It's, uh, I was talking to Cheryl Crow about this literally earlier today because she yeah. came in yeah, yeah. and she was like, I was sad, man, at the end because, and I said, I get it, but it's because it's like the end of Lord of the Rings. You know, it's like, there's no more rings, man. Mm. There's no more Lords. There's no more books. There's no well, more nothing. You've got the answers that you've been waiting for. Or I have mixed feelings, but I mean, I want to see it, but at the same time, like I talked to a lot of people like who are a little bit, you know, younger than us. And there's like, yeah, I don't really get the Beatles. It's just like overexposure. And I'm thinking like, well, wait a second. You, literally, like at this point, we've seen every wait, single thing. Wait, you're saying the Beatles are overexposure <laughs> during like 2022, which is like the generation of overexposure? Well, I'm saying that like, there's just, there's no, like the mystique is now, is like fading. You know what I mean? If you listen to, you know, like the Clash, imagine if like every fight the Clash had was on film. It was on film. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel it. like it's just a little bit exhausting, you know? It's like sometimes a little bit less exposure is good and keeping that stuff under wraps. I mean, I don't know, a 14-hour documentary of the, a band in the studio, it is something that sounds like, you know, I'd watch, but... It's like, what's really fascinating about it is that you actually get to see the dynamic in real time and not and not written about after or talking heads, discussing what was going on 40 years ago. It's in there. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, sh- that's why they broke up. It's so obvious. They broke up because McCartney was on an absolute tear. And in very in in lots of different ways, no one could touch him for different reasons. I mean, I would assume as someone who's been in bands, we've gone through our tense periods of time. Like whenever you see a band, I mean, as like if I see if I were to watch it, I'd probably just be like, whoever didn't tell these guys to go on vacation for two years is a idiot it's true and they all paid the price for it but i think i I think when again we all paid the price for it because eventually we had to listen to ebony and ivory (laughs) (laughs) like a class action suit (laughs) against paul mccartney in 1982 filing it right now let me respect you for picking one of probably only a handful of songs you could have drawn from that actually make that joke complete you picked a good one but then i've never talked to you about this and when i talked to you about it you were so you were always so casual about it, and I couldn't talk to you about it because you weren't around to talk about it. But there was a sort of period of time where I felt there was an in, there, were, there was just fundamentally an inactivity within the band. Were you just did you just need to walk away for a bit? Was it just a life thing? Like what was it around the sort of the start of the second decade of the century? No, we just burned out. You know, we were going through some heavy stuff, and Dan got divorced in 2013. We made a record that year. We should have taken some time off 
Dan should have done some side projects and mm. but we 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 worked through it and then we just had to take some time off. So Dan did the arcs, he did a solo record. Yeah. Started his label. It was all good. I mean, I, I don't think the only thing I would have changed is just like, you know, communicating better to each other that it's okay to take some time off. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's not the end of the end of something. Yeah, that's what I see with the Beatles stuff. I'm just like, oh yeah, like your wife or girlfriend's sitting next to you, like interpreting the fight for you or whatever's happening. Like you, you need to go. But the but the issue with that is, is to me at least is far more far more about love than it is about her and her being sure. sort of connected. The, sure, it, sure, really sure, simple, sure, like, but, sure, 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 sure. But like if I mean, it's insane. It's insane because he can't get past <laughs> it. Like he can't get past it. Like he's so in love. He's like Paul's like. So I've I've just written Let It Be. Like, yeah. have you got any songs? Yeah. And John's like, oh, I just wrote it. Be like, no, I haven't got any songs, but I will bring some songs. But I haven't got any. It's, it's yeah, like I can't he's, watch. I can't watch. Like that it's before. tough, man. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough to watch because and there's hilarious moments where Paul's literally learning how to write and writing and structuring. Let it be on the piano during downtime, waiting for them, and some geezer in the business is just reading the sports pages, like totally unaware <laughs> that he's listening to a song, which will probably be put in a capsule when we all go to Mars and taken with us. You know. Yeah, you know, uh, it's like in Spinal Tap when. Uh, Janine starts reading their astro astrological charts, you know, and she then wants to be the manager. That's right. It's like, dude, it's the realest movie ever made. And they just announced it they're is. making a sequel, are which they, is, I can't wait. They're, oh, they're, they are. It's coming out in 2024, the 40th anniversary. Wow. But dude, it, Spinal Tap is crazy. It's factually correct. It's everything about it is accurate. <laughs> everything from like the, the, the one of the scenes that like resonates with me just so much is when you know like they're checking into their hotel and like their room they they, they, all, they all are sharing one room and then they see like some dumb and they're like, where are you playing tonight? Like, oh, oh, some a normal dumb. A normal dumb. That's my favorite bit. <laughs> That's my favorite bit. The guy's like so off mic. He's like, I don't know, some like a normal dumb somewhere. I see that. And I'm like, it reminds me of like the first time we met Jet, they were like opening for us at Spaceland. And then the next time we saw him, we're like, what are you guys doing? Uh, headline in Fuji Rock. And we were like, you know, flying in a cargo plane <laughs> over to Japan. Standing room only. We were like in dog kennels. And, yeah. <laughs> Mailing ourselves to Japan to go play for 500 bucks. Oh, man. I want to play another one. This is, a, like, for me, reflects a little bit on what you talked about, which was that journey you went on with, with Ox, mm. which was kind of getting into a different place in terms of the records you produce, mm. where it kind of, like, a little bit of that, maybe that sort of instinct, that Brian feeling as mm. well of, like, you can... It doesn't have to sound like the like the just the room every time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you can have something in like that to me is just a break, and that's just a yeah. you know. Yeah, definitely. Brian, the construction of something like this was influenced by Brian, but the backing so track. It's like it's you a, you did you bought this right? The backing track, didn't you find this or? Yeah, it's this Optagon organ. And my uncle Ralph was obsessed with this thing. It's like a Mattel made toy that you would like put these pre-made uh, flimsy disc records into the organ and it would like you could have like you know be like Hawaiian grooves and have like these weird cheesy rhythms that you could play like flute on top of those and by the way as kids we were given these things and we would like just groan that like why can't I have a real instrument why would you give me this thing and then these things turn out to be the sickest sounding things it's crazy it's funny because like, my uncle Ralph had one and he, he played with Tom Waits for years and they were like talking about Tom would use them too and 
independent of each other, knowing this this guy like he created like a machine that can play the old discs, and it's outrageously expensive. Yeah. But Dan and I independently each bought one <laughs> without so, realizing. Yeah, that. and I went over to the studio. Like, this is so and weird. And I, like, oh, I got every one of the discs. I spent like ten thousand dollars on these <laughs> discs. So how Seriously, many, how many discs are there? Like a hundred. Uh, they were expensive, like a hundred dollars oh a, a pop. God. And it's I pulled out the one that was like bass clarinet because he took. He made certain discs that were never complete that he knew that were, were, were on the slate to be done, but it was such an unpopular toy. <laughs> but the, the bass clarinet disc, I look at it and it says, bass clarinet played by Ralph Carney. Wow. So my uncle was like friends with this guy recording these discs for this guy. That's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, but yeah, that, we just kind of took the pre-recorded thing. and then Which we, one is this one? Uh, it Ain't Over. No, but I know, but which is the disc? Oh, I think it's like, like cocktail. It's like... <laughs> It's know. so sick. I mean, like, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like some sixties lounge shit, and it's just, it's literally, we laid it out, and then I'm, I was like, oh yeah, that's where I, I played it, and I'm like, oh yeah, when Brian comes into place, he's like, yeah, if you, or my uncle Ralph actually yeah. was like, oh yeah, if you want the Optagon to sound really cool, you put the disc in upside down and it plays it backwards. So the first two bars, it's straight, and then we then you flip it, the flip it, yeah. But yeah, that's just, you know, but that's the, how we work. We just, we have like four or five or six different ways of coming up with a song. You know, Wild Child came about in a similar way. We made a drum loop and just started kind of throwing stuff at it. Right, making the music for us is the easiest part, you know. It's then, sometimes it's finishing a song. That's why like on that song, we had, uh, Dan had the chorus like done. Like he knew the melody he had the guitar part. He had the solo. All that was done like within an hour or two of working on it. But we were having a little trouble just figuring out what direction for the for the verse. And Dan's like, "You should. We should call Greg Cartwright from Rain and Sound because he'd been working with him a little bit." So Greg popped in, and we hung out, and talked about music and life for a half hour, and then listened to the track, sat around with guitars and the lyric was done about an hour later and, then he, and he split so, <laughs> and we've never worked like that before that was first for us and we looked at which part like, of it was the first working with somebody like working, working with a writer a writer we'd never brought someone to, someone to help to work figure on that out stuff. wow I mean people do it every single day and we yeah. do it all we do it them. every day huh we do it every day yeah or you know, yeah. when we work on other stuff it's what we're doing yeah, yeah. but it it opened it kind of we you know we would co-write with Brian but this was different different so this would be the first time that you go on stage and sing somebody else's kind of words in that regard mm, yeah yeah I mean I we mean apart them, from Delta Cream and things like mm, that yeah yeah we wrote them together but I mean yeah absolutely makes, makes you realize why you've been putting yourself through that hell for so long right it's so much easier <laughs> when someone else writes it well it, it, it like flipped, it flipped a it flipped a switch for us because. You know, when we finished making this album, we just we just kept working. We just kept blocking out more time at the studio, and we've been working at Dan's place. We haven't stopped, man. Yeah. How many songs do you think? We almost have another record done. Amazing. Yeah, we've been, but we've been hitting the Rolodex hard. Oh yeah, who's been coming in? Oh, uh, I don't we can't think, say. Yet. We can't say yet. What the? It'll ruin it. Are we doing here? What was that? We spent 50 minutes just lulling you into the sweetest spot ever. Yeah. I used every f 
fucking trick I have. Do you know how hard it is to interview these fucking Muppets? I've spent the last 25 years trying to get inside the fucking room. I'm finally in the room. I finally teared up. Patrick's about to spill it all. And fucking Dirty Dan. Dirty Dan (laughs) with the cease and desist. We've been in the studio with Abba. <laughs> and here comes Patrick back to form. <laughs> Look at the puppet. Look at the puppet. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, I thought it'd be funny if we worked with someone that we were working with Carney Wilson and Dan Fogelberg. What? <laughs> Pac-Man fever. You've got the Pac-Man fever. Uh, we've been, uh, no, we've been, we've been making a lot of cool stuff and it's been fun. Actually, you know, I think that that's the thing that's changed. You know, it's like when we made Let's Rock, it was our first record since 2014. And yeah. Seeing like just how the industry's changed and what's impactful, what's meaningful, it's all changing. And so, do you notice that stuff though? Absolutely. And then it comes time to make a record. It's like, oh yeah, like for a long time, it was like, you got to have big first week numbers. You've got to do this. And, I, you know, part of it may be that we have done that. We've had the number one record and before. And it's like, you realize, like, oh, this is, these aren't the things that you really want to chase necessarily. So for me, it's like, and for us, we've been looking at things more like less uh, cyclical, more just like, oh yeah, we're a band and we're making music and it's just, there's no, we're making a record, we're putting a record out, we're touring. It should all just be, we're working. Here's what I know from doing this for a long, long time, that if you try and chase a milestone, yeah, then eventually you won't catch it and then you'll be just f- bottoming the f- out yeah, yeah. the only consistency and you know you both know this is to is the work yeah. it's just to keep going and let the world catch up or not they will they won't but you just keep going because yeah. it's fun that's it that, you know it takes a while to figure that out it does you know but moving to a place like nashville where i feel that that attitude is pretty 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 present there I know people are searching for big hits and big songs and big radio records and big country moments and this and that, but it's also a place where it's like, you can just keep working. I will say, I mean, I think accomplishing it makes it a different thing. When we, when we put out Brothers, it was number three. And that, our previous like charting record was 14. Sure, so, it's a privileged position to well, have I was that like, If we got three, well, why can't we get one? <laughs> so then we made our next record, and it was like number two because Michael Bublé's like bullshit Christmas record like sold like a billion <laughs> copies and we're like that's f***ing us right now so then we're like we gotta get the number one thing so we make Turn Blue and then like one of the like the 50 f***ing posthumous Michael Jackson records came out and like literally we're sitting at home our manager calls us like yeah it's the number two record Michael Jackson I was like bullshit there's no f***ing way that that garbage has sold more than us and they went and they audited the f***ing books and they found out that they were giving the record away at some Cirque du Soleil bull- in Vegas, like if you bought a ticket, you got a record, and they were counting that. Sh- so they threw them all out, and we got the number one. We had to like f-ing fight Michael Jackson's lawyers to get the number one. <laughs> I just love the fact that this guy he got rolled his sleeves up and got so into it, he starts doing. Well, I'm like, a sales I, I, I'm audits. obsessive with like I don't I'm not I don't think I have Asperger's, but I like the number thing. I'm just like I won't. Dan, Dan's birthday, we got to put the records out in May. We've had good luck with that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, I do think as clean <laughs> as it is. ordered in the number one album. That's the best story ever. <laughs> yeah. They were cheating. They were. 
You know what? And when for dudes that like literally came up like eating McChicken sandwiches for like years on the road <laughs> and whatever the you know struggling, and then finally getting inch by inch to the top. When you get to that point, and it's like you see someone dump twenty five thousand sales from Las Vegas for a week. You yeah, know, like it. there's no no one even lives in Vegas. Who don't have you ever known anybody bought it bought a CD in Las Vegas? <laughs> you, you buy what the you don't buy CDs in Vegas. <laughs> Come on. Not only were they fucking lying, they were bad at it. <laughs> That's the worst thing. It's like I have, a, I have a teenage stepdaughter. I'm like, it's not so much the lying, it's that you're so bad at it. Oh, you sound like my wife. She says that to my kids all the time. She's always like, next time, yeah. don't get caught. Exactly. <laughs> I'll play another one. Really? I mean, I'm serious. If you're a Black Keys fan, this is like the f in Mount Olympus of Black Keys albums. It's like all that raw shit that you like instinctively delivered at the start, but like the playing's fucking ridiculous. And I know that's Billy Gibbons. God bless. Who's on the B3? That's me. Beautiful. Oh, Patrick, you're in that fucking pocket, bro. Like you're fucking picking it. I was a little nervous. Because Billy was in the room? Yeah. It's the first time I've ever like recorded with a, like a legend like that. What's he like in the room when he's when he's laying down tracks? Cool. Coolest. Yeah, he man. showed up with a bottle of red wine. He didn't bring a guitar. Uh, so I, he played one of yours. Yeah. He played a guitar that I own that used to be owned by Mississippi Fred McDowell. And so I handed it to him. He, we plugged it straight into the amp, turned the amp all the way up, and it was, boom, there's Billy Gibbons. Wow. It's funny. It sounds just like the ZZ Top Records. And if you talk to, like, guitar nerds, like, actually, um, Billy uses, like, a seven-gauge string, and that's the tone. But now he just picked this thing up, and it just was like, fucking hell. <laughs> Spoke through it. Yeah. Oh, and shit, he, yeah. When, when he finished a bottle of red wine, he took off. And we had, like, four songs finished yeah. by the time he left. Wow. So that was the hourglass. The hourglass was the wine that's bottle. That's just, yeah. That was it. You got me for a bottle of red. Yeah. How much time we got? We got this much time. Oh, that's epic. I'm going to take that with me. Yeah. Next time I go to someone's house. It's a good, ta good tactic. It's a good tactic. I'm just here for a bottle of red and I'm out the door. That's awesome. Yeah, he's the coolest. Of course. That, that's like, that is a good example of like, I mean, it's improvised. It's a jam. There is no multiple takes of that. I think that's one of our talents is to know, to, to go back and listen to that. And let it go. And like, and let it go. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? That is the feel that you can never replicate. And like all the notes in there where you're a little rushed or a little loose, yeah. that's the good shit. That's the Patrick Carney shit. No one else is going to be that loose or that, or that feel, like have the feel you have. It's Absolutely. Yeah, it's wrong. It's like, it, if it's right, it's wrong. Yeah. For me. We have to have that on our records. You know, you know, we can make our yeah. singles, stuff that might go on the radio, but we need to have songs like that on our records to make it feel like a Black Keys record. Well, they're two very different things, right? If it's right, it's wrong. But when it's wrong, it's fucking totally right. They're separate <laughs> yeah. things. Like, they're totally, they're complete opposite things. You know? It's like, I never really thought about drumming as, as like a tight 
timekeeping until we started working with Danger Mouse on certain things. And I, I mean, it was productive in the sense that I think I, I got to be a tighter drummer when, when I need to be, slightly, but counterintuitive to the way that I approach that. Instrument. I'm going to say something a little controversial, and I feel I can because we've given Brian more than enough love on this conversation. He knows I love him too. But that's the one thing I think that was missing on him on, at, mo at times during those records was it just felt a little too in, in, metro metronomical. A bit too, too restricted, yeah. You know, whereas that track is just like, fucking bro, you're playing on this shit. It's nutty. Like... Where are those ghost notes, though? Ah! Oh! And you're nervous? Till you play. Uh, I just was, I wasn't really, not nervous is my word, I just was like, oh, uh, hope Billy likes this or something. That's cool. That's but afterwards, he was very complimentary. Of course he was. He just had a whole bottle of red wine to himself. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, keep it coming, Billy. Keep it coming. <laughs> so let's talk about touring. Because you sort of, uh, you, you made a, a, a sage observation before that you haven't been in the UK enough. Well, a lot. Enough's enough, but a lot is another thing. Yeah. And you just put a North American tour on sale. So that's awesome. So can we talk a little bit about that? And 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 now you put a tour on sale and you've got this awesome record to play and you've got Delta Cream, which you can weave in. You've got the catalog of amazing records you can dive into. We're going to bring Kenny Kenny and Eric with yeah. us. And we're going to do a mini Delta Cream set in yeah, the middle. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, we, we had a... we did Drop like, a bomb on the Delta Cream. We played a show at the Troubadour last night, like um underplay, they call it. Alice Cooper showed up. Man. Alice Cooper was there. It's pretty cool to see I didn't even know there. about it. I yeah, it was... That. It was like Was it for serious or something? No. It was just for us. It was just so I think it was just a way to get a show under our belt, honestly. Damn, but Dan, we, you didn't reach out to me? We, <laughs> dude, you took me up and down the sunset strip in your car for an hour and a half. We had a moment, bro. I thought you were gonna invite me to play drums and black keys at the end of that ride. You can't invite me to the underplay? No. I think you know someone. It was, was it good? It was too under of an underplay. It was a madhouse. I man. just we just pissed off all of our friends in LA like can Seriously. I go? I was like, no, nah, actually, I just got yelled at <laughs> by our manager. Um, but it was funny because we put making a set list, like we had an hour to play, and it's just like, oh shit, like there's like uh, 11 gold certified songs on this 16 out of these 16 songs. Dude, you're fucking essentials. There's, there's a lot of hits. It's there's hits. But um, this tour is gonna be amazing because we we we're gonna do this little. We're gonna do some Delta Cream. And uh, we're getting to play outside for a lot of a lot of a lot of these venues or amphitheaters, which we've oh, never that's had cool. to play. Which yeah, we've cool. never done that. So you'll play like the Gorge. Um, I think actually the, most of the West Coast stuff is actually indoor. Ah, uh, um, tell me a, you're doing a bowl though. We were gonna do the bowl, but I but we decided to do the forum. I guess we want to get our name on the wall there one more time. I love the forum. It's a, yeah. an awesome indoor venue, but the, you at the bowl would be crazy. Yeah, get um, a little wine and cheese, some delicious sparkling wine. Sit down, put a blanket over my knees, and watch Black Keys and blow my little mind. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, old age. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds fucking great, right? Yeah, being young. <laughs> <laughs> the keys hits though, man. No, we're excited that we haven't been out in so long. We're, we can't wait. Right, we had a can a whole. We had a whole summer tour. Where we're gonna do the amphitheaters 
in uh, 2020 that we had to, uh, of course, cancel. Mm-hmm. Um, we're playing an amphitheater I used to work at when I was in high school. In the parking lot with the flag, you know. We're playing wow. Blossom Music Center. Is that the first time you played there? Yeah. That's a moment. Mm-hmm. That's going to be cool. You're going to piss on the steps? Pretty funny. <laughs> I Take actually that. think I think we opened for Beck there, actually. Did we? Beck took us on an amphitheater tour where we did it. We got to do like Red Rocks and... I remember doing Red Rocks I with think, Beck. I think we did Blossom. I we don't barely know. made it there in time. Um, Which um, album were you on at that time? So this is crazy. Uh, I met Beck when I was 16 mm. on that Odelaide tour because my Uncle Ralph, the one mm-hmm. with, about the Optagon, uh, he was friends with Smokey Hormel, the Beck's touring guitar player. And uh, anyway, Smokey Hormel put me on the list and I got to go see Beck uh, and I got backstage it was a big deal. I was 16 and I met, meet my first like rock star. And that, by the way, that's like peak Beck teenage fucking idol shit. Like Odelay was out of here. That record was just so important yeah, to me because yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was so good but so fun. But anyway, I, I go backstage was, you know, ner- very nervous and he's like holding like the fruit bowl and he's like, do you want a pear? Just, you know, <laughs> being so weird. Most big introduction. And ever. I'm like, God, he's so cool, man. <laughs> and uh, I've loved pears ever since. And then, like the next time I really run into him, we're on we're we're uh, on tour with Sleater Kinney on our first like tour with a with a band that like showing us the ropes, and we're playing the Roseland Ballroom in New York um, in February of 2003. And we had we have a record called Thick Freakness coming out in a couple months. And I had a promo in my sleeve, and that Sleater King's like, "Do you want to go to the SNL after party?" Uh, Beck invited us, and so I was like, "Yeah." So we go there, and like, um, we're at this, you know, after party. It's like too expensive for us to order a drink, so we just start like pounding. I start pounding on like the leftover drinks on the table. <laughs> this is fucking bum over here yeah. drinking, and John Belushi's leftover whiskey. And Chris Catan comes over, yeah. and it was like. Are you drinking other people's like leftovers? And I was like, Yeah. He's like, Dude, can I hang out with you? <laughs> like, yeah. And then uh, I got the balls to go say hi to Beck, and I was like, hey, I met you, blah blah blah. And here's this record, and you know, the next day I'm sure it's like, Oh, probably sound like an idiot. And a couple weeks later, our agent calls us and like, Yeah, Beck just invited you guys to support him on the whole summer tour, including playing a show at Brixton Academy and. uh, you know, London, which is another big, huge thing. He really was an early big supporter of us, of ours. And uh, yeah, that meant so much. Oh my God. And we were on the Sea Change tour too, which is a beautiful record. Yeah. Um, to get to hear those songs every night was so amazing. And that yeah. band, his touring band, it was like Jay Bellarose. Legends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Josh Klinghoffer. Yeah. Stephen McDonald. Greg. Greg Kirsten. Greg Kirsten on keyboards. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. We were hanging out with these guys. Yeah. Holy shit. So you have a chili pepper, red cross. <laughs> yeah. You have in Kirsten. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. And Jay is maybe one of the sickest drummers to ever yeah, walk yeah, through. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I love that he also picked like some of the most dynamic, hard playing musicians to play the softest <clears throat> music, right? That they sounded says, so good. That day. says a lot. You know, I mean, you don't think of Steve as being the guy who's going to step into that space because he's like the fucking scissor kicking, long hair thrashing fucking rock star. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. I love hearing stories like that because you just reminded that that whole concept of pay it forward. It's real in the arts. It's so real in the arts. You know what I mean? I mean, that was a huge break for us to get in that tour and meeting the people we got to meet on that tour, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
getting the confidence of uh of like being endorsed by you know someone that you you know really really are a fan of and look up to and uh it happened a couple other times but with us it happened once radiohead took us out which is another another um really cool thing but with beck it was different because it was he was hanging out with us yeah he was interested in us as you know and uh how can you not believe in magic when you're a teenage kid i keep saying this and i keep trying to get the the story right but i think i'm getting closer so i'll try again you know talking to janelle monet about this the first time she met stevie wonder she was walking into a venue because they were playing the same i guess maybe it was like a some kind of show together and she was walking in and he was sound checking to her song. He'd worked her song into a sound check. She just was like, wow, how, how do I, where do I go from here? And so we were talking about that. And she was like, and I was talking about the idea of being a fan, being a peer, and then being a friend. And that happening over and over and over and over again where you're drawn the people that you admire into your world and vice versa, right? Magic. And she said, I think that when we find people that we love, and they influence, influence us to the degree that we, we, we work it into our music in an authentic way, that the only people who recognize that are the people who influenced us. So we are subconsciously reflecting them back to themselves in the music and the art that we make because we're just we're fanning out so hard, but it's not so overt. You know what I mean? Wait, wait, can, you, wait can you say that again? <laughs> can't get it right. Can't get it right. That's a good place to rest it, you know, because because my impressions of this guy. Let me go through the five impressions of this guy over the last twenty five years, right? Number one, I mean, the guy barely fucking looked at me the first time I met him, right? Thank God for Dan and his uh, yeah, Catholic yeah. guilt or whatever the fuck was driving his desire to be nice to me. Number two, he finally lets me in and starts cracking the. F- jokes number three the jokes get funnier number four i just want the jokes and now number five i feel like we've 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 got we've got there we've got there i feel like we got there now we're there yeah man well i i always always love seeing you because not only a i get them i get music you wouldn't be here without music we're not that close but i also really always appreciate just this kind of weird i'd roll on and the fact that we're actually still here right absolutely man. it's always great to see you man yeah you too Thanks for listening to the Zane Lowe interview series. Hit the follow button to find more conversations from Zane and artists like Will Butler, Bonnie Raitt, and Swedish House Mafia. And that is just scratching the surface. Zane will be back next time with a conversation with the one and only Cheryl Crow.